You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and today I'll be chatting with a return guest to the show. Gabrielle Dolan joined me more than two years ago to talk about how we can be better presenters. I remember it well because we had a great time laughing and scoffing about all the terrible habits we see that make presentations awful. It's a great episode, number 56, if you're interested. But now she's back with a brand new book called Real Communication. And again, we have a great time dissecting the world and highlighting all the painful and hilariously terrible communications that we, and no doubt you, see all around us. But in true Gabrielle style, she brings it all back to the positive and gives us some wonderful take-home ideas about how we can be better, more authentic, effective communicators. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Gabrielle Dolan. Gabrielle Dolan, welcome back to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks, David. It's good to be back. Well, don't pretend you remember, Gabrielle. We were just talking before I hit record and you said you only had a fuzzy memory and it was only when my email address came up in your inbox when you did a search that you remembered you were on my show at all. Do you have any idea how much that hurts me? Oh, I'm sorry, but when you reminded me and you reminded me we had a good laugh doing the last podcast, I do recall that now. But yes, I do a fair few podcasts, so... Is no, that, that's a pathetic hey, excuse. So do I. <laughs> yes, now, I when when your name popped up, I on the list of options to, of people to have on my podcast, I thought fabulous. I've only just had Gabrielle on my podcast, and I wanted to go back and listen to do a bit of prep for this one. And it was actually over two years ago. Can you believe? Yeah, and that's that's right. It was, I think, the release of my last book, Stories for Work, which I think that was like about March 2017 or something. There we go. Time flies. So if, you, if you're interested, the, the first episode I had with Gabrielle was all about storytelling, and it was back in episode 56. We are now well over episode 100, Gabrielle, so I've, I've doubled my experience since I spoke to you last time. Now, look, what we're going to do today in this episode, your new book is all about real communication, authentic leadership, great stuff. It's right in the sweet spot for this podcast. And I want to get out of you your top five tips for being a real, authentic communicator and leader. And that's where we're going to get to as we work through this episode. But one thing I really like doing is when we've got a solution to something or when my guest has these fabulous ideas to solve problems. I love raking over the coals of the problem itself. So let's talk about what you describe in your book as the embedded distrust that we're used to in society when it comes to leadership and communication. We did the same thing for storytelling last time, and I know you don't remember because I wasn't special to you, but I remember, and we spent a good five or 10 minutes absolutely lashing PowerPoint and the hurt that that puts on good presenters and good presentations, the fact that it limits us and restricts us. And I was always waiting for a letter from Microsoft, a cease and desist type letter. We really did cane it. But let's do the same for leadership and authentic communication. Gabriel, tell me, what do you see in society that motivates you to write a book like this and think and speak about this topic? 
Well, it's probably you're right. When we we spent five or ten minutes just you know bagging PowerPoint, I think we could easily do the same on bagging the jargon, so corporate jargon, and our complete addiction and overuse of acronyms. It's just mm. it's um I'm just seeing it more and more, and it probably is one of the reasons. Not the main reason I wrote the book, but it's certainly contributing why we need real communication now. It's just the way we speak in business with jargon and acronyms, if we spoke in any other aspect of our life that way, we would just call it out for how ridiculous it is. But it's just become the default and the accepted way of communicating, and it's not real. It's just not real. In defense of acronyms, and I share your pain, I just want to play devil's advocate for a minute, because in organizations or teams where everyone is clued in, everyone knows there's some really commonly used acronyms that everyone's onto. They can save a lot of time there and they're almost a tribal language. You kind of feel part of the group when you know these acronyms. It's a, a shorthand way to have complex conversations to describe things that we all know in a couple of letters. That's the good side of acronyms. Mm, so that is. What's, so first of all, do you, am I right? Does it serve that purpose? And, and if so, what then is the bad side and when do we cross over? Yeah, and look, you're right. There's, you know, I use acronyms and as I'm sure you do and nearly everyone would use some form of acronyms in, their, in their, the way they communicate. And you're right, it can become a really efficient way to communicate if everyone understands what we mean by the acronym. I mean, you know, um, I started my career in technology and, you know, when ATMs and PIN, you know, personal identification numbers was pretty new. But now, you know, no one would say an automatic teller machine or a personal identification number. We would just say ATM or PIN. And and to the point where most people probably don't necessarily know what that acronym means, but they know what it is. And because you see a lot of people say ATM machine, and pin number, yeah, and pin number, so they don't know what it means. I mean, some words like scuba. I mean, that's that's an acronym, and Is you it? know, we yeah, it's scuba actually start, um, meant self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Wow, I didn't so know that. So some of the some acronyms become words. Uh, mm. Laser, laser is actually an acronym, and that that has become a word. So yeah. acronyms can become a really efficient way to communicate if the person you're communicating to understands what the acronym is. And that's the big if. And what I'm finding now in business, it's not only, I mean, I, I don't think we should get rid of acronyms. It's the overuse of acronyms. We feel like we have to reduce everything to an acronym. And we use we use a term once or twice in a document and feel we need to reduce it to an acronym. I read an article, I read a document by a client and they were talking about people's skills, knowledge, and experience, and they reduced it to SKE. Oh, is that, <laughs> I mean, that is just completely unnecessary. Yeah. When, you know, writing out skills, knowledge, and experience doesn't take, you know, that much effort. So it's this, it's the unnecessary use of acronyms and the almost this belief that that's the way it should be done. I had a really good conversation just a few episodes ago with Jen Jackson about communicating powerfully and and we had a really good chat as the overuse of business cliches, and you talk about it as well, jargon. It really is a disease. We find ourselves using it in organizations. We find the copycat effect. It spreads like wildfire, and we can all rattle off right now a whole bunch of those kind of cliche jargons that people use, like blue sky thinking, think out of the square, mm. um, you know, you know there, there's millions of them. 
And it's just a lazy form of communication. And I often say when I hear someone who speaks outside of that type of jargon, who uses real language, oftentimes just really simple language, but bespoke for the moment, saying what they're really thinking right now, rather than resorting to this almost language that is rammed down our throat, I find that type of communicating so refreshing. And in contrast, when someone launches into jargon-laden waffle, I find myself switching off. And I have to say, embarrassingly, to my shame, I find myself losing a little bit of respect for the speaker because I think, can't you come up with your own words here? Mm, yeah. Look, there's so many things in that that I'd love to address. And one is one jargon is a copycat approach. All it takes is you know, someone in the senior ranks or an external consultant to come in and everyone's just repeating the term to mm. sort of feel, you know, like they know what they're talking yeah, about. The, like the latest belong. one, yeah, the, it's, and it is, it's a form of belonging. I think I talk about in the book the three reasons why we use jargon and one is acceptance that everyone yeah. else is using it. You have terms like my latest one at the moment is pivot. Everyone two years ago, no one was pivoting. No one was pivoting two years ago. And now everyone's pivoting. And it's, um, you know, and we're just using this word pivot all the time instead of changing. But you're right. And there's a couple of things that all the the research shows that when people are using so much jargon, we actually tend to, I mean, you said lose respect. And it is that we tend to lose a bit of trust because we think they're actually hiding something. Yeah. And research goes to show that I mean that's another reason why we use jargon when we actually want to avoid saying what's real. You see this all the time, you know, when companies announce some um, restructures and there'll be job losses and they won't they'll talk about downsizing or yeah. right sizing. Yeah. I quote in the book this example came up about a week before we were about to go to print, so I madly included it. <laughs> and it was um when General Motors in America were shutting down, I can't remember exactly, but it was like a five, about five plants and they were going to lose like 14,000 jobs and the um, CEO came out and, and referred to that as reallocating. They were what? reallocating. Um, it was just <laughs> we're like, reallocating you to the unemployment queue. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. It's a reallocation. Exactly. <laughs> so, Congratulations, um, you have been reallocated. Yeah, so you just – So there is this mistrust, like people are thinking, are you trying to hide something? And like you said, you hear you hear people speak and they're rolling out, you know, cliches and you're thinking, can you just like explain it in real words? Because people actually connect and engage with real words. I used to I used to work with a a guy, this was years and years and years ago. He used to talk about executional excellence all the time. Yeah. And to me, whenever he said executional excellence, I sort of just thought that he'd killed Guillotine. something, but did yeah. it really well. And I kept asking him, what do you mean by that? And he would still use jargon. And after a few attempts, he sort of said, what it means is once we decide to do something, let's just bloody well make sure we do it right. And it was mm. like, you know, why don't we say that? Because as you said, I can relate people, to that. you can relate to that. Yeah. We don't relate to executional excellence. It is crazy. Look, and some of that is just good old-fashioned euphemism, not being willing to say what we really mean because it's a hard message. Mm -hmm. But some of it is much less impressive than that. Euphemisms are not impressive to start with because they suggest a lack of courage, a lack of clarity of thought, a lack of commitment to the message. But worse than euphemisms, it's trying to be misleading or it's trying to sound smarter or more advanced in your thinking than you really are. And 
And as I've said before, I unashamedly, unashamedly lose respect for that when I hear it. And I spend a lot of my energy avoiding using cliches. I'm sure I fall into the trap occasionally and listeners, regular listeners probably are thinking of times where they've heard me on this podcast use cliche or jargon, but I really do try and avoid it because not only does it make me feel proud of the language that I use, but it forces me to think through what do I really mean? Because it's 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 a bit like the the linguistic version of sitting down when you use mm-hmm. jargon. It's easy. You're taking a load off by just using someone else's words that might not really match exactly what you're trying to say. Finding your own words for something just takes that little bit more effort. But in the process, it it ensures that you've thought through exactly what you mean. Look, I, I love all of that. It's it's amongst my favorite topics, Gabriella. I really enjoy speaking about the purity of language and and speaking and communicating effectively. But there's a bigger picture element to this, isn't there? It's not just about the jargon and the acronyms and the cliches that we fall into the trap. There's this larger scale mistrust of political or or business leadership authorities because of the way that we communicate and the this new version of truth. Tell me a little bit more about that bigger picture and the way it impacts us and the way it filters down through society. Yeah, it's um we are in an environment of distrust and I'm not sure if the way we speak has led to the distrust, but I think because we're in an we're in an environment of distrust, the way we speak has got to be like so real and so authentic that using this jargon and acronyms we just can't afford to do anymore. So there was um I guess uh, one of the reasons I got right into the book and started writing it is um, I came across a Edelman report and they do this report on glo- on trust every year and they've been doing it for 18 years and I think they've just released the 2019 findings. But when I was researching for the book, the 2018 findings, they tracked trust and, and they had seen the biggest decline of trust in the whole 18 years of doing the research. And it, look, now I know 18 years isn't like, you know, hundreds of years of research, but yeah, it's, it's still- good, It's a good breath it's, of time. It's a good, it's a good breathing time. And we talk about, you know, the, the birth of alternate facts and fake news. Now, again, we never even used the term fake news and alternate facts a couple of years ago. And I know it, it all came about, you know, through Trump and the, the presidential election, but- Again, fake news is really, really easy to create these days. So it's just adding to this whole you just don't don't know what, whether people are telling the truth or not. I mean, in in Australia recently, you know, the last couple of years, we've had those you know two of the big royal commissions into the banking industry and the um the churches, and they've uncovered like you know just years and years of abuse of our trust. So. I don't know about you, but, you know, I was raised a Catholic. Um, one of my parents' very, very good friends was a bank manager and you couldn't get more too highly trusted and respected positions in society than the local bank manager and the local priest. And within a generation, you know, both those um, industries, I guess, for want of a better word, have just eroded all trust in those institutions. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. 
I guess the the absolute nature of the trust in those two institutions probably made it easier for misdeeds because the trust existed and the latitude was given. And I guess it suggests that it's not just in a Trump and post-Trump world that we've entered this kind of alternate facts thing. Alternate facts have always existed in some form or another. I mean, a a priest who abuses children, who, let's acknowledge, are in the huge minority in the Catholic Church. We just hear about them, but they, they exist and we've heard all about that. But a, a priest who abuses children, but then turns up on Sunday to give service and and speak with the, the parishioners and, and have decent conversations, that's a form of alternate fact, isn't it? It's a, a misrepresentation of what's true. So we've always had alternate facts, and and the smiling bank manager who'll shake your hand and show their white teeth and sit you down and and offer you a service that you don't need and charge you through the teeth and then continue to charge you after you've died, that's an alternate reality as well. So they've always existed. Mm. But have you ever seen a cultural shift like the one we've seen since Donald Trump became president? He single-handedly seems to have emboldened the use of alternate facts, and let's call it for what it is, is outright (laughs) lies, Mm. and and just stating lies as if to say, well, prove otherwise. We all know that's a lie, but you can't prove otherwise, and if you do give me proof, I'll make up some proof that suggests your proof is wrong. We've just had a federal election here in Australia a few months ago, and I know that Australian politics has been on a really sharp decline for over a decade now, but have you ever seen a political campaign that is so proudly devoid of fact and truth and and, and proud of the fact that you can't prove me wrong because I'll just prove that you're wrong? And we're just in this awful cycle. So coming back to my original question, have you ever seen someone change the culture like Donald Trump has at any other time in your life? Well, certainly not in any other time in my life. And and you're right. It was his – I read something the other day that, you know, um, on average he says 14 things a day that are just wrong. They're just lies and and they're provable lies, but he still says them. Yes. And and he sort of knows – while people are sort of going, that's not true, he's just moved on to the next one. Yeah, so, that's right. And I think the way American politics is now has absolutely influenced the Australian politics absolutely. because I, I think this election that we've just gone through, I have never been watching those ads just thinking how do they get away with telling just absolute lies and it, and it was from all sides yeah. that you're going that this is not true or, you know, I, I, I was even saying that there should – every political ad should go through some independent body before they market the ads to almost go, there's got to be – like there's got to be some truth to there. I get there's marketing spin and I get there's painting your opponents in bad light, but there's actually got to be some truth to it because it's just, mm. li- it's just lying to the general public. And, you know, in, and in the end we're trying to vote and we don't even know what the policies are because – the politicians, their own policies, they're doing a really crap job of communicating them. Yeah. So we're all we're hearing is the opposition telling us what their policies are, and most of them were were lying. Through lies. distorted lens. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is quite amazing, and what you're suggesting there, a lot of people would scream as as uh, restricting freedom of speech and all of that kind of thing. The fast paced cycle of the twenty four hour newsroom. 
uh, almost makes it okay for politicians, as you, you know, you say. On average, Donald Trump tells outright lies fourteen times a day because he knows that things will just move on, and his lies yesterday will become fish and trip wrapper tomorrow, and no one will remember. And he can it just suits him at that moment in that narrative that he's telling right there and then. And I hate to say that I've just seen that reflected. Uh, you know, physically and metaphorically and behaviorally in Australian politics so quickly, it was as if certain elements of our political society were just waiting for permission to start acting like that. And it's given them a blueprint for being completely dishonest. But you know what they say, we get the politicians we deserve, we get the governments we deserve, and and they can stand in front of cameras and and lie all they like. But if we're not paying attention as the voting public, if we're not holding them to account and and refusing to vote for people who get on TV and tell outright lies, then we are getting the politicians we deserve. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to all move to New Zealand. Oh, I know. And, uh, you know, you've heard all the stories about the number of times that's been Googled. How, you know, how yeah. easy is it for me to move to New Zealand? Look, anyway, we're we're philosophizing, we're raking over the, the ashes of society, as I always like to do before we set ourselves up for some great answers to these these ponderings, which you're going to give us soon. But I, I have one important question, and this is something that always bothers me. It's one thing for us to hear that at a political level, and, and to a certain extent, we've all written off politics anyway. Politicians, you know, survey after survey shows us are, are very distrusted in society, and that's not a recent phenomena. That's not a Trump thing. That's just been the case for a long time. But my concern is that these are the leaders of our community. These are the most visible leaders we have, people whom during an election campaign especially are on TV seemingly all the time. How does that influence how we treat each other? How does it influence how leaders act at work? Do we either consciously or subconsciously start to see that and those qualities as actual leadership? And do we start in any way mimicking those? Do you see any evidence of that through organisations and the people you work with? I think the sad thing is that we probably do. It's, um, you know, that old saying, you can't be what you can't see. So, mm. you know, if you can't see someone rise to the top of leadership, yeah. being respectful to their opponents and respectful to people and listening and not lying – then you'll think, well, you can't get to the top if you don't do that. Yeah. Um, I know we just spoke about New Zealand and, and you know, the likes of Jacinda Ardern show us that it, it is possible. Yeah. But I think, you know, it's sort of like, you know, why they crack down really hard on, you know, at AFL and the rugby with sporting heroes because they know that those people at the top of their game influence people at the ground roots. And, mm. and I don't see that being any different – from a leadership perspective. So if yeah. all we see is Dishonesty. aggressive, aggressive yeah. leadership and inauthentic leadership and lying and bullying, that'll become what leadership's about, which yeah. I think is really sad because I think there was a long while we were moving away from that to more inclusive leadership, more collaborative, more respectful. And, yeah, I, I hope this election was just a little bit of a blimp and it doesn't um, – doesn't impact the way that we all lead, whether it's in politics or business. Yeah, we've made an, an ugly about turn. If if your analysis was that society was moving to a kinder, more gentler kind of way of engaging with each other, we've made a pretty sharp turn because things have gotten ugly nationally and internationally as well. 
You know, you speak of Jacinda Ardern and, and what a breath of fresh air she was or is. And we just continue to get news stories from New Zealand that I think, God, oh, I wish our government would do that. Oh, I wish our government would do that. It's just so beautiful and refreshing. I've never been more envious of our New Zealand cousins. But who in Australia is the answer to that? I, you know, you don't have to give away your, your, your politics here, but do you see anyone behaving like that? Is there anyone on our landscape who tries to behave in that kind of way? Or is it simply not possible in the current Australian political environment? Look, unfortunately, what I, and and this is, I was going to say it's not a gender thing, but maybe it is a gender thing. Look, if I had to sort of name a few people, they're, they're going to be females. Like, you know, Tanya Plibersek, for example. She, yeah. I think she would have probably come the closest to what we're talking about. Yeah. And I, the sad thing is, you know, she's made a decision and it's made a, a whole life decision. So, you know, again, what I see in business is females tend to make more inclusive decisions. So when they're making decisions about do they go for the top CEO job, do they go for, you know, to run for, you know, Labor of, leader of the Labor Party, they're taking everything into account, their family, their community, their, how it's going to take a toll on everything and they make decisions based on that, which sort of sometimes say, I'm not ready to do this because of my family. And, you know, again, we we saw Bill Shorten and, and Scott Morrison both have children as well, but that that's not a factor in their decision-making. And I'm not saying right or wrong, but what I'm saying, women like that generally tend, they would, I believe they would make better leaders because the way they make their decisions is more inclusive and more collaborative and more respectful of everyone and I think that's the lens they make their decisions from. So I think we need more of those leaders. Unfortunately, perhaps because of the current environment, they're choosing not to be part of that. Of course, it's, it's, I've got to point out, it's not to say that there are no men who make decisions no, based no, on those ab- kind of no, things, but, absolutely. but your point is well taken. So for those of you who aren't queued in or been living under a rock or don't live in Australia, Tanya Plibersek was a senior Labor figure who, when Labor lost the election, was one of the people who we assumed would run for the Labor leadership. But before it even came to a ballot, she pulled out and said, it's not for me at this stage. So, you know, you're right. It it seems as though she, especially in this case, took a, a whole of life view. And we hear that less often from men. It's not like we don't hear it at all. So just Tanya Plibersek, that's a sad story. Look, that, you know, <laughs> that was the first one that came to mind. Yeah, I but, probably- but I, I often, you know, so so through the election campaign, so my wife and I drive to work together often. We go and park in the city and away we go. And all through that campaign, that painful few months, we were listening to ABC radio on in the morning and we would just roll one after the other politician from both sides of politics, from some of the minor parties. And I just used to say, where is that person who just – refuses to bag the opposition, who answers the actual question that the interviewer asks them, who speaks real, who speaks holistically, rather than this narrow kind of everything we do is right, everything they do is wrong, kind of looking at the world through a toilet paper roll. I was longing for that person. And I have to say, I, I know what you mean about Tanya Plibersek, but even the best of those that we have they do get caught up in that friend-enemy mentality when it comes to the sharp end of a political cycle. So I just am waiting for that person to arise in Australia and be above all that rubbish 
to not be someone who delves into mistruth or cherry-picking facts, who is willing to educate and inform the public to speak holistically about issues and bring us along for the ride. That's the person I long for. But you know, one thing that scares me is after the last election is maybe Australia is not ready for it. Maybe Australia doesn't listen to that kind of thing. Maybe Australians can only be communicated to in aggressive five-second sound bites. Or maybe that's what's only put to the media. So that's maybe, you know, you could hear someone speak for an hour and they might be speaking well and ans- answering Making questions and, and there's that five-second soundbite that um, the media pick up on and that and that's, as an audience, that's what we hear. Perhaps there's a bit about that going on too. Mm. All right, let's get to the good stuff now. We have, we have diagnosed Australia as dying. That's sad. <laughs> That's a bit uh, sad. I, yeah, let's let's hope that there is some life support and there's some uh, some medication that can cure us at some point in the future. I can't see it yet, but it will come. Better days ahead. Now let's talk about your top five. Yeah, when we talk mind about you, we, mind you, we were only talking about politicians then, so you know, so it's not all doom and gloom. There's not, but it is it is it is on my mind at the moment, given what we've yeah. been through recently. Now listen, real communication, authentic leadership. I know how important it is. I know how important it is that I stand out as a beacon of authenticity and quality in a sea of, at best, mediocrity, at worst, cynical negativity. How mm-hmm. do I do that? What are your top five, Gabrielle? Oh, my top five that can probably um, pick up both real communication and authentic leadership. I think um, the first two I'm going to go cover quickly because I think we've spent a lot of time on, and that is one, using less jargon. So we've just talked about when we use jargon, we're um, potentially disconnecting and isolating people. We've been a little bit lazy because we're just, you know, using those words. So having the courage to actually use real words, and when I say the courage, sometimes people think it's dumbing things down, but it's actually helping people understand it, which is pretty smart and not dumb. So I'd, I'd say the first one is use less jargon. And the other one that we've talked about, the second one, is just the unnecessary use of acronyms. So again, at a bare minimum, acronyms can lead to miscommunication because for every acronym there is, there's multiple variations of acronyms. So it's just we think we're using acronyms to be efficient with our communication, but it's actually been less efficient and in some because it, it leads to miscommunication. The, the other thing too, I think it's actually been really lazy because we're putting mm. all the onus on the other person to do yeah. the interpretation. So, yeah. you know, you talk about things like SME and now that's going to mean subject matter expert or small to medium enterprise. Mm. And even if we sort of know what it means, we the other person has to do all the interpretation. The yeah, they yeah. do all the work. Nearly every company I work for says, yes, we've solved that problem because we have an acronym database. It was like, <laughs> that does not solve the problem. Just <laughs> reducing the amount of acronyms you use will solve the problem because, you know, again, in that database, you've probably got, well, you will have SME, subject matter expert, and you'll have SME, small to medium enterprise, and you'll probably have SME for something else. So, it's, Not solving uh, the problem, just creating a list of it. It's just creating a list. And, I, and I've got no doubt that database is called ADB acronym database or something. Uh, of course, it is. I was um I was doing some research the other day, and it, this happened way too late for me to put in my book. But it was a really interesting thing that the the widespread of acronyms came about during World War Two. 
So the word acronym itself only entered the dictionary in 1943 um, because the widespread use of acronyms happened in the World War to make it more difficult for the enemy when they intercepted the message to understand what it meant. (laughs) So So we're actually using something that was designed to be hard to understand. Yeah. Let's think about that genius for a second, that we are using a default language that was used, specifically designed, to make communication harder. And that's <laughs> for some that's reason- we, we That's what we've gone with. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. <laughs> so, so, yes, less jargon and unnecessary use of acronyms. So, the third tip I could give, and I think this lends itself to both real communication and authentic leadership- is the use of storytelling. I mean, um, like you said at the start, I, we had, I spoke to you two years ago on stories for work. I think when, when people can share personal stories, it not only helps your listener to understand the message better, so to actually understand what you're talking about, but it actually humanizes you. It makes mm. you real. It, you know, the really good people that share stories in business, they show vulnerability, they show humility. A lot of their stories are about when they didn't get it right and the things they did wrong and the lesson they learned from that. So I think having the skill and the courage to share personal stories to get your business message can be really, really effective when you're trying to step into real communication and authentic leadership. And I mean, I've been teaching leaders for 14 years how to share stories. So it's an absolute passion of mine. So I, I may be slightly biased, but I think it's just critical for people to use stories in business. Look, I don't think this is about your bias at all. I agree. It's such a powerful, it's a powerful concept. And I've done, I think, two, at least two episodes on storytelling, one with you and one much earlier with Sean Callahan, both fabulous episodes. And since then, I've been really tuned into it. And and I notice I often in, in my workshops, my leadership workshops, I get people to do presentations and you know, delve into certain concepts and stand in front of a group and present it. And I notice that when people are presenting content and they're trying to give people some kind of insight to dry theories and models, people are kind of interested. Oh, yeah, I haven't heard that before. But as soon as someone gives that cue that says, I'm about to tell a story, you can feel the room just sort of lean forward and want to hear where this all goes. When someone gives that cue, like when we're a kid, we know the cue is once upon a time. But as adults, we know the cues. There are cues. Like when I was working as a teacher or at the beginning of my career when I was, you know that that person is about to start yeah, telling a story. Absolutely. And immediately you can feel it. And I'm really tuned into it now because of the conversation we've had. When you're tuned into it, you can feel the energy and the interest lift in a room. But I'll give you some insight. I don't know whether I shared this in our first conversation. From a presenter's point of view who's not a storytelling expert, it actually takes a bit of courage to tell a story. Even Mm. though I know rationally that the audience is going to be really interested, it's actually hard to – you kind of give yourself permission to tell the full story. When I first started doing it consciously as a presenter, I used to do it thinking, yeah, this is the right thing to do, but I would rush through it because I just didn't feel comfortable sort of taking up that space and time about me not really trusting that it was the best way to get the message across. Over time, of course, I've relaxed a little bit and I indulge a bit more with the story. But at the beginning, I used to find myself rushing through it because I wasn't really comfortable. But we all know from a 
from an audience perspective, when someone starts telling a story, our interest level goes through the roof. Listen out for it next time, folks. When you're, when you're at a presentation or a forum or whatever it might be and you're in the audience, your ears know when someone's about to tell a story and just watch how interested everyone around you becomes. It's a, it's a magic trick. Yeah. Well, and, and the reason it's a magic trick, it's actually in our DNA. So it's actually, you know, we're hardwired as humans to tell stories and we're hardwired to listen to stories. So just like you said, as kids, when, you know, you go once upon a time, you got all excited because you knew you were going to be told a story. Now, not that you'd ever start that in business, but if you start with, you, um, you know, not necessarily let me tell you a story, but what I suggest to people, if you start with time and place, and it's like, mm. like you said, it was like, you know, three years ago, I, you know, was on an African safari and then people are about to they instantly know you're about to tell them a story. So they listen to it differently. But yeah, it's, it's in one of the things I get when I run my storytelling workshops, a, a lot of the leaders go, but I, no one would be interested in my personal stories. Mm. And, mm. and, you know, we do this activity, I teach them and then they sit around and listen to their peer stories and they're all sitting there going, wow, that was so interesting. Yeah. And all their peers are saying to them, your stories are so interesting. And it's the day-to-day stories that are interesting. Just, you know, they're not the big ones. So it is, and you're right, it's the courage to share personal stories because there's this natural reluctance of thinking people won't be interested in my story. And people do exactly what you did at the start where they tend to rush through it. And when I coach them, I just, you know, just relax. I mean, you know, you don't want your stories going on forever, but you, you don't <laughs> want to rush through it. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you a tale. No, we don't want that. Great. Okay. Number one, use less jargon. Number two, unnecessary use of acronyms. Get rid of them. Number three, use storytelling. And that's a whole thing. Storytelling is a whole skill in itself, unlike those first two, which are pretty easy to cut out of yep. your life like a skin cancer. Um, But look into the storytelling thing. There's a couple of great episodes here. Listen to Gabrielle's episode back in 56. I think it's a a really good insight. All right, then what is number four? Can I just point out that was back in number 56, not 1956, because that would imply imply we're both older than what we are. Wouldn't we have been groundbreaking podcasters back in 56? Back in 56, yeah. The way I said that, did it sound like a year, did it? Yeah, it it sounded like back in 56. (laughs) (laughs) No, neither of us are that old, quite. No, we're not. Okay, so number four. Number four, I think, is around what I call the real apology as opposed to the plastic apology. So, What I mean by that is when you're stuffed up, whether you personally or your company, it's take full responsibility and accountability and actually apologize for it in a real way. Not, you know, a lot of people apologize and they'll say things like, if anyone was offended, I'm sorry if (laughs) anyone was offended, as opposed to saying, I'm sorry for being offensive. That's like a slimy the, move, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sorry if move. I caused anyone offence. Yeah, I, well, I, I apolog- apologise. Yes, I apologise if my actions caused offence. So it's <laughs> it's not apologising. <laughs> um, you know, I've I've actually you know in in the book I cite a couple of examples of of people not doing this well, and it's you know I, I talk about the Australian cricket the ball tampering scandal where it was just. You know, it took them a long, to, you know, it took them days and days to days to come out and actually take responsibility and apologise for it when there was there tried to be a cover up. There's a few other examples I talk about. That was ugly. But, um, yeah, ugly. it was very ugly. And also, and talking about what 
the actual more damage that does as opposed yeah. to just coming out and saying, you know, I don't know. Got what it wrong. Was, like, got it wrong. Got Terrible. It wrong. I wrote a – actually, my blog post today was on this because I was actually – when the AFL came out and apologised for the treatment of Adam Goods, it, that to me was a, a real apology. But there, were, there was no – it was just literally we know we didn't do enough. We let him down. We let everyone down. And yeah. then and then it went on to say, you know, we will continue to take action on this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. So not only textbook. a real – Yeah, it was textbook. It was a real genuine one with it's action. A genuine um, textbook. Genuine <laughs> no, textbook. Yes, no, it, was, it did come across as genuine. I agree. Yeah. So, so that's my fourth. But, you know, just, you know, you, we're all human. We all make mistakes. So when you make them, just – Take responsibility and apologize for them, and apologize them in a, in a way that's genuine. And the other thing, and this is, I think this really comes to more authentic leadership than real communication. And, and when I do talk about leadership, I'm not talking about a title. I'm not talking about mm. you have to be in a position of leadership because anyone can exercise leadership. And that's, I think, just to take a stand on something that's important to you. So, look, we have seen a rise of this with CEO activism, with the you know the mm. likes of Alan Joyce taking a stand on marriage equality, and in mm. quite a few other. CEOs doing that, and for the I think for the first time we are seeing CEOs take a stand and a lead on social issues that are important yeah. to both them and their company. Where yeah. you know I I reckon it would have only been maybe about five years ago where we wouldn't have seen this. They would have thought that was an abuse of their power, and yeah. now I think they're seeing it. Well, I have got power, and I'm going to use it for good. So. And you don't, and you like I said, you don't have to be in a position of authority. I was going to say, this. do I have you to can, wait till I'm a CEO before I can do this? No, you just don't. You just, you know, you, if you're something's really passionate about it, just, just take a lead. Like in this, again, I talk about in my book. My daughter's really passionate about the environment, and she is, and she spent days making this little turtle, and she stuck a straw up its nose, and. You know, she wanted to then, you know, she took it to school and put it in the canteen to raise awareness about the use of plastic straws. So, it doesn't have to, <laughs> you know, great. it doesn't have to be these big grand things, but yeah, you can exercise leadership regardless of, of what position you're in most of the time. That's a fabulous place to leave. Gabrielle Dolan, I really appreciate having you back on the show. I always well, always, I say always, in the two times we've spoken, I've really thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been lovely to chat. Excellent. And I'm going to remember this one for sure. <laughs> I'm so flattered. Thank you. Thanks, David. And that was Gabrielle Dolan. Again, I always love chatting with her. We'll get her back on the show for sure. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Gabrielle on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.